Welcome to Federal Insights, a special Cybersecurity Awareness Month edition, sponsored by Okta. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Sean Frazier, the Federal Chief Security Officer at Okta. Sean, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Good to see you, as always. And our topic today is ID management and authenticating and authorizing people that are accessing networks. And maybe this is a moving target. So why don't we talk about what the state of the art is? What is the best practice at this point in time for ensuring the ID of agency users, your internal people yourself, contractors, regulated entities that your agency might interact with? That's a second class. And then the unwashed public that might come to your website for whatever purpose they need. So really three questions in one here. Why don't we start with your internal users? So it turns out that not a lot happens until a user requests access to something. That's why identity and access management is so important. And I think over the last, you know, 10, five, 10 years, we've really thought about identity and access management more of a security construct, um, but it's also a usability construct, right? It's something that we have to provide good user experiences so that the users, when they log into something, it's pretty seamless. But at the same time, we have to think about what are the security implications of that. So obviously the attackers are thinking of what the security implications of that. And that's why when you kind of look at the news and you see a lot of uh, uh, attacks in a lot of places that have been vulnerable, a lot of the, the, the vector that the attackers come in uh, using would be the identity and access management plane. So I think you know some of the things that folks can look at for best practice is certainly, and this is something that, that has been accelerated if you look at the executive order that came out a few months ago, accelerating some things like single sign-on, secure single sign-on, which allows users to, to kind of federate identity, not have to remember 15 passwords for 15 websites. Now I can remember, remember one strong password log into all of these things, but also making sure you're protecting that with additional compensating controls. So things like multi-factor authentication, which was called out in the executive order in quite a few places, because anytime you use a password or any place you use a password, which is just this shared secret string, anyone can have access to that if they have that string, including attackers. So the way you mitigate that is you add multi-factor authentication on top of that so that the attackers, you know, they can't pretend to be you by having the password but they also don't have your device, they don't have your UB key, they don't have your, your, you know, the thing that you have that proves that you're you. So it turns out that, that identity and access management is pretty powerful and pretty important, both from the attacker perspective, but certainly from a defense perspective. So therefore, then the same regime should be in place, regardless of who is accessing your resources. Yeah, exactly. And this is kind of one of, it, it bleeds in really nicely into this this, this concept of zero trust security, which is don't trust anything out of the box. Don't trust anything at first blush. Make sure you're validating uh, and continuously validating the trustability of that request. So you're continuously um, authenticating that user um, into whatever thing they're getting access to. And, and again, the flip side of that is making sure you're not punishing the user. So you're not making it too, too difficult for the user, adding too much user friction, because that's not what we want to do. We want, we want to add attacker friction not user friction, but you need to start with those kind of core tenets of, of protection. So you need to start with secure single sign-on, multi-factor authentication as the, the core tenant of the identity stack. And the identity stack happens to be one of the first tenants or first pillars of a zero trust architecture or zero trust mindset, which is I'm going to provide these capabilities and these protections regardless of where the users are. And nothing, nothing hit that home for me or I think the world any better than the pandemic a year and a half, two years ago when everyone started working from home. It's all of a sudden we're not in the office anymore, but yet we have to provide the same level of protection. The reality is we, we should have done that anyway because we really, what was happening at the time was we were in the office and thought we were secure. Attackers were outside the office and we're still getting in. 
So what we realized is that that mindset didn't really work. So it actually was kind of a wake up call to kind of thinking differently about the way security is applied. And let me ask you just a detail question to follow up on the point about single, uh, a secure single sign-on. And that, as you mentioned, to use a strong password in addition to that second factor, which I guess is an expiring type of code of you know numbers and so forth typically. But the idea is that no matter what is said, the password is going to be something that's going to remain with us for the, the foreseeable future, it seems. So are there any particular password practices for example, you said a difficult password, there's friction right there. So I guess a two-part question, should the password be maybe a phrase that someone can easily remember, but it's still a lot of strings uh, of numbers and letters, or uh, should, and, and my second question is, should passwords be kept in browsers for ease of users? So to your first question is, I know that, so NIST had updated the guidance around password recommendations um, the last go around with, with 863.3 and then moving into 863.4. Um, and they've actually recommended not, um, because we used to talk about changing your password like you change your underwear. You change your password all the time. We talk about having very strong, lengthy passwords, even to the point where we're talking about passphrases and some of these different things. And NIST has actually backed off from that and said, you know what, this is really too hard on the user. What we ended up doing is we, we kept notching up the friction, notching up the bar, putting all the onus on the end user to protect themselves uh, while not taking much responsibility on the IT side. And the user just got fatigued. It's one of the reasons why they write passwords down on sticky notes. They use the same password in all their logins because it's this hard, complex thing to remember. So NIST kind of backed off from that and said, you know, if you use compensating controls like multi-factor authentication, you can have a password. It's still got to be a strong password. You don't want password one, two, three, but it doesn't have to be changed every week. It doesn't have to be the super complex passphrase or all these other things. It can be complex, but it's not something that has to be changed all the time, provided you have those compensating controls. So I think that's one of the most important thing to realize is we got to think about security as, as well as usability in, the, in this context, where we've got to make things easier for the users, but also providing the, the constructs that make it secure so that users do get secure access. The other thing I will say is that I wouldn't necessarily store things in browser cookies because browser cookies are, are kind of an issue. So you certainly want to use a password manager if you have multiple passwords because you want to have different passwords for different things you log into. Again, using multi-factor on all your different logins, but use a password vault. Use LastPass, Password One, all these password vaults that are available that are out there. Some browsers are now actually integrating password vaults into the browser, which is fine because that's kind of a secure element, a secure place to put the passwords. But yeah, password managers are another best practice. Okay, good. Well, I appreciate that answer because I think it's something we all deal with at a personal level as well. And the other big burgeoning issue then is ID management in the cloud. That is saying a lot because the uh, the, the uh, authentication can take place on a cloud-based type of platform. The resources you're accessing might be in the cloud. So both things might be cloud-based or maybe only one is. And it could be either one of those. So maybe discuss some of the complexities of, of taking this ID management, authorization management to the cloud, because that's really the, the uh, infrastructure agencies are dealing with in a practical sense now. Well, I think it, 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 it kind of mirrors the natural evolution to cloud computing to begin with. If you look at over the last 20 years, everything's kind of been moving towards the cloud. And there's that old joke running around that the cloud is just someone else's computer, which is true. But what that means is it means someone like Amazon, uh, or, or other entities are actually better at kind of securing and standing up large amounts of, of scalable infrastructure, right? So that's what the cloud does for you is it allows you to stand up infrastructure very quickly to meet demand, 
but it also allows you to do that securely. So when a new patch comes out that has to be applied, Amazon's on the hook to do that. You know, Okta's on the hook to do that for our cloud service. You're not on the hook to do that. And it's actually been proven. And, and NSA released a really good document last year that talked about this, that in most cases, you know, since the move to the cloud is so, is so acute and is happening across the board, it really doesn't make any sense to run your identity platform not in the cloud because everything's kind of in the cloud anyway, when you think about it. If you do have some on-prem resources, a cloud identity solution can protect that securely as well. So there really is no reason not to move your identity stack and your identity security into the cloud because that's kind of the trajectory where things are going versus where things are coming from. So how does a user from a given location, whether the agency or their home or some remote work location, then first they have to get to the cloud to access the platform. And that would require an authentication process also though, wouldn't it? Yeah, and chances are they're already on the cloud. Again, if we learned anything over the last couple of years with the pandemic is that, you know, they're working, you know, users all the, abruptly started working from home. They're, they're on home, they're on the cloud, right? They're watching Netflix and Amazon Prime and all these different things. They're already on the network doing all their personal stuff. It's just, oh, by the way, let's just sidecar this, this uh, business access and business capability onto the same home network. I had a really good friend of mine who said we went from 100 branch offices to 10,000 branch offices overnight as an enterprise because everyone's worked from home. So now you got to start caring about people's local printers and their, and their routers. Are they updating and patching these things on their local home network? But they're already on the cloud. You know, we, we make this, this misconception where we think about users, they come and sit in an office and sit in a building and that's the network that they're on. But the users are already on the cloud doing all their personal stuff. So it doesn't make any sense to think about that as a different entity. So that's, again, the thing that we learned from the pandemic is that we're all in the same network. And then how does your Active Directory then fit into the architecture here? Because that's often the control point for who belongs in an organization and who doesn't and what they can access once they are in. Yeah, and, and a lot of organizations who have deployed on-prem identity solutions and legacy solutions like, like Active Directory can extend that to the cloud. Okta does a really good job of extending that and cloudifying the identity and access management, leveraging that repository. We can get even go a step further and we can leverage an HR repository as kind of the source of truth. So something like a Workday, uh, some other repository of users where we can kind of bring that in so we can automate the process where user gets onboarded to the organization, automatically shows up in Okta, automatically can access all the apps that they've given rights to access. And that's exactly how I onboarded at Okta a year ago during the pandemic. I never went to a physical office. I did it all from home. I onboarded, magic happened, ended up in Workday, got all my apps, you know, an hour later, all my little chicklets I could log into, I clicked on a button. It was probably one of the easiest onboarding experiences I've ever had in the 30 years I've been doing this. Yeah, so that kind of mitigates then against the CAC card model to use what is among the most secure models in the government, which still has to originate with an in-person type of encounter. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, the in-person type of encounter is actually something that can be separated out from the access. So in a good example, and this is this is the kind of the forethinking that NIST had when they put together 63.3 was separating out the proofing, which is I got to sit somewhere and prove who I am physically or I can do it remotely from the authentication. So it's the AAL versus the IAL. Um, but I think the CAC card obviously is something that, again, it's one of those legacy things that was, was you know, best of breed at its time, but it's old, it's 20 years old. So it's been around for a while. Obviously we still need to use it because there's millions of them out there and, and people use it to log into things. But there are other things you can use to log into to make things much easier, which I consider kind of the, the PKI 2.0. So if you consider CAC card PKI 1.0, I look at technologies like FIDO2 and WebAuthn as PKI 2.0. So it takes some of the best constructs and secure elements of the CAC and the PIV 
and it gives the user experience that they expect. So it's a, it's kind of the Apple user experience where I can, in a couple of clicks, I can log into something and do that securely. So I think we're in the, the inflection point now where we're looking at CACPIV legacy. How do we still support that? But how do we do the next thing? My guest today is Sean Frazier. He's the Federal Chief Security Officer at Okta. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is Federal Insights, Secure Identity and Access Management, sponsored by Okta and Amazon Web Services here on Federal News Network. We'll be right back. President Biden's executive order on cybersecurity is a solid step toward creating a resilient cyber infrastructure for our nation. Okta and AWS can help agencies meet the cybersecurity executive mandates with a zero-trust architecture that aligns to FedRAMP, NIST, and other standards. Together, Okta and AWS provide a vendor-neutral approach that enables MFA and identity management across endpoints, workflows, and supply chains. Learn more at okta.com forward slash federal. That's okta.com slash federal. Welcome back to our discussion, Federal Insights, Secure Identity and Access Management, sponsored by Okta and Amazon Web Services here on Federal News Network. My guest today is Sean Frazier. He's the Federal Chief Security Officer at Okta. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And Sean, we've been talking about cloud-hosted services, cloud-hosted Active Directory, and the need for a cloud platform for access management, ID management. And we should talk about the cloud providers themselves, because often, they have among their list of 10,000 possible services you can order from them, services related to cybersecurity, to log on to ID management. So discuss maybe the need for removing friction from your agency's process by using what the clouds themselves offer as commercial entities. Well, I think, it, Tom, it's been widely understood that, that cloud provides value in the sense that it can it provides scalable infrastructure very quickly. So for example, if you're deploying an application, you need 100 servers literally overnight. Who better than Amazon to deliver that capability to you very agilely and, and very cost effectively. And, and it also is a matter of, of kind of managing your costs, right? Do I go buy a bunch of servers and hire a bunch of people or do I do just do an operating expense and write one check every month? So it's, it's been kind of widely understood the, those benefits of cloud. I think the one that's not as well understood that I think is equally, if not more important, is the security aspects of cloud and picking a provider who is really focused on security. And, and Amazon's a great partner of ours in this sense. And that, you know, when when servers have to get patched and they always do, or software has to get patched and it always does. I mean, who's on the hook to actually do that and be responsible for that? So if you're an organization or an agency and you've got a thousand servers in your data center, you got to hire a bunch of people um, just to manage those. And, and sometimes they're sitting around, but sometimes their hair's on fire because the patches come out, all servers have to be patched. They can't be patched during business hours. So everyone's working overnight and weekends. Or another good example is I got a, you know, a pandemic happens and I got to scale up my infrastructure, but then I have to make sure that's all done securely. Again, that's another hair on fire moment. So the, the benefit of cloud providers, they've already kind of built in and automated all of this capability, including the patching and security infrastructure for what they deliver. So it allows organizations and agencies to focus on what they do for a living, which is their users and their data. So they're not spending a ton of money on racking servers and plugging them in and scanning them and patching them and updating it. So it kind of removes a large amount of, of um, kind of resources and dollars that they've got to spend in order to deliver that service because they're giving it to somebody who kind of does that better and does that for a living across the, across the board. All right. And I wanted to ask you about a related issue, and that is ID proofing because we talked earlier about the PIV process and the CAC card process and how we're at an inflection point. 
to be able to allow people generally, whether you know highly secure jobs or ordinary federal jobs, to to log to uh, become provisioned and join the organization remotely if they can't do it in person, and that's where ID proofing often comes in. And there are a lot of third-party proofing services that have data and elements that the agency itself may not possess, but are nevertheless legitimate legally to use as ID proofing people. And we've all encountered these in, in private life. So how do they fit into the picture and how can they get incorporated into cloud hosted platforms for ID management and enrolling people? Yeah, they're a very important part of this because that's kind of the front door to get users in the system in order to, to trust that element of that user as they come in. Um, and we talked about the, the smart card and the physicality of, of proofing where you have to go kind of sit in front of somebody and sign a paper and then they give you a card. And that's still valid. There are still proofing mechanisms that look like that. But as we look at, again, back to the kind of the pandemic in the last couple of years when no one can go into an office and get a card or do anything physical, there have to be other mechanisms to do that. And it also it kind of splits between two lines. One is kind of the corporate line of I can, I can force a little more rigor on the corporate side. Then I got the citizen side. So for example, if I'm dealing with citizens or customer facing stuff, I can't necessarily make all my customers come to a building and fill out a form and then give them a, a credential. I've got to be able to do that online. So we partner with a lot of great organizations that deliver this capability. Um, LexisNexis is one of them. We've actually done quite a few implementations in the States to protect uh, Department of Labor data. Obviously another very key element, key importance during the pandemic is folks had to, to apply for unemployment benefits and wanted to make sure they could do that securely and make sure their identities could be protected and make sure that they could actually onboard and proof those identities securely as well. So it's a very important part of the aspect. I talked earlier about how NIST was smart to kind of separate the two things out. So you've got the IALs for proofing, and you've got the AALs for authentication because they can, be, they can happen at different levels depending on the use case. So you might be able to online proof somebody at an IAL2, for example, and then you may still require strong authentication in an AAL3, and you have the flexibility kind of mix and match. Yeah, so for agencies that are offering these types of publicly facing services, such as were famously offered by the trillions through the various pandemic response legislation pieces and appropriations, you know, we're now we're coming to account for some of the fraud that happened in those cases and some of the just simply unworthy individuals. And their ID proofing as something offered to the public. And we haven't really talked about public users or you know the constituents outside of contractors or federal employees. And so it seems like cloud hosted proofing there would really be useful. And probably we have, can point to some agencies that have already done that. Uh, for example, if you sign up for my social security or for Medicare, these elements come into play when you try to sign up as an individual uh, so that no one else can take your identity. Maybe comment on yeah. how they fit into the whole cloud hosting type of uh, setup. Absolutely. And I would say that, that if you're not doing it in the cloud, you again are going to struggle with this because you're going to have to build these monumental systems at this large scale. Uh, and you're going to have to keep that in perpetuity because you don't know what you're, how often you're going to have to prove people, how many people are going to come in at the same time. It's much easier to work with a cloud service provider who can kind of scale up and down based upon your requirements versus you having to kind of figure all that out on your own. And there are a lot of good organizations to do that. And you mentioned that, you know, that a lot of fraud happened on the front end of the pandemic. And I can't fault anyone for kind of moving fast to try to provide um, unemployed people their benefits because that's exactly what we should have done. But obviously the next time, next go around where if we have any kind of events where folks are required to do this from home, we've learned our lesson, right? And we got to put that protection on the front end. So we are preventing fraud because the attackers, wherever there's money on the internet, 
that's where the attackers go. I mean, the attackers run a business just like businesses run businesses where they go where the money is, they get the low hanging fruit. Uh, it turns out that identity and access management is kind of low hanging fruit. If you don't use those protections we talked about in the earlier segment, you're not using multi-factor authentication, you're not using secure single sign-on, that's pretty low hanging fruit for these attackers. And they'll keep attacking that vector until we stop them because there's no reason for them to stop because it's still pretty easy. And so what are some good practices for preventing phishing attacks from having success because they're getting more and more sophisticated. And if you're after IDs and credentials, phishing seems to be the most important vector for getting those as opposed to someone hacking into a cloud server and taking, although that happens too, but what about the phishing aspect? Yeah, I think if you look at, at any given statistic that's happened over the last handful of years, um, kind of phishing, social engineering of getting someone's credentials ends up being like 80, 85% of the threat factor, right? So it, it, and the reason it continues to stay high is, again, we haven't made it hard for attackers to, to not to do it. We haven't created enough attacker friction on those things. So phishing is an interesting one. You have to kind of help handle it with a very much a belted suspenders approach for security. You've got to do a few different things. First thing you do is you enable multi-factor authentication. If you can do phishing resistant protection, so phishing resistant would be a FIDO or a FIDO2 token. So it might be a, a hardware token that's, that's utilized. That creates a little bit of user friction because people like my mom have a hard time using a YubiKey, unfortunately. Um, but that's the, that's the high bar of security for the end users. And I think that, you know, as long as you're doing the multi-factor authentication and, and again, can apply those single sign-on constructs, you also have to do end user education. And the reality is we tell people not to click on links, but the internet's full of links, right? We all get emails with links in them. You can't tell users not to click on links, but what you can do is you can educate them so that they have clicked on a link and inadvertently, there's a mechanism by which they can notify somebody, either, you know, if they're a consumer or a customer, give them a rig, big red button that they can click on saying, hey, I accidentally clicked on this link. We thought, I thought it was you. Um, I hear, you know, my credential might be compromised. Same thing in the enterprise. You know, make sure that you have a, a robust security program where users feel, feel empowered and users feel like they're part of it so they can report that and they don't get shamed into thinking, oh, I clicked on that link. I don't want to tell anybody because that, that would look bad for me. Make it an open experience so they can tell people because the reality is there are links out there. You know, we can do all these mitigations. Mitigations are great and that will protect us from most of them. But part of it is involving users into the security conversation too. And getting back to the ID management question in the minute we have, maybe just give us some of the places to go for standards and references to be, to be able to design systems that are contemporary and up-to-date and meet federal standards. So I think there are, there are a few things, and I would also point to um, some places to go with regards to zero trust security, because I think uh, identity management and access management isn't something that stands alone by itself necessarily. It's part of this bigger security story, this bigger security kind of mindset shift we've had over the last several years. So obviously, you know, NIST has a few different places I would go to for information. So certainly 63-3 um, is something that I will always look at. I would look at what NIST has done around zero trust. So 800-207, that's another great document. There is a, an NCCOE building block that's been spun up over the last couple of weeks that's an adjunct to 207. I would pay attention to that to see what some trust. I would also look at some of the guidance that's come out really pretty recently from CISA and OMB and other places around zero trust and identity and access management. As a matter of fact, CISA just released their zero trust uh, maturity model. They just released their cloud security guide, which is a really, really good guide, very holistic approach to cloud security. So I would encourage folks to, if you haven't signed up for the CISA alerts, please do, because they're putting out a lot of good information. All right. Well, thank you for a very action and information-packed conversation. Sean Frazier is the Federal Chief Security Officer at Okta. I'm Tom Temin. You're listening to Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Okta. 
Thank you for listening to Federal Insights, a special Cybersecurity Awareness Month edition sponsored by Okta on Federal News Network.